Pastor Daniel should be up in a minute, but until he gets here, I'll do my own version of the sermon. And that's everything that was wrong with Pastor... There he is. Okay. I will hand hand the uh, the ABF now over to my able friend and colleague. That's just that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Seeing there are no questions. Oh no 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 Adam Adam no I, I got an off switch right here I'll, I'll handle it. Can I can I throw a question at you, Pastor Daniel? You may. I'll prime the pump, get things going. One of the, and I know you said you weren't dealing with all of the objections, but one of the objections I'll sometimes hear that I thought you might be able to quickly answer is, Jesus never directly spoke about homosexuality, so it can't be that big of a deal if Jesus never directly addressed it. Uh, Let me start by saying that's bad hermeneutics. How to interpret the Bible. So... It is not a good way to interpret the Bible to say, well, what did Jesus say? And if he said it, it matters. And if he didn't, it doesn't. The Bible is full of things that Jesus doesn't talk about explicitly. So not a good place to start. He didn't tell me anything about cocaine use. Does that mean it's okay? He didn't tell me anything about bank robberies, you know? So does that mean that's okay? That's not a good way of approaching it. But given your question, maybe why didn't he? I think he does in a couple of ways. One, uh, he quotes Genesis chapter 2 in regard to divorce, but he quotes it and he says, from the beginning, this is how God made it. A man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave to his wife. The two will become one flesh. What God has brought together, therefore, don't let man separate. So he affirms the biblical um, definition of marriage. He also affirms the authenticity of Genesis chapter 2, which is so fundamental to our understanding of the relationship between men and women. And then he also says... uh, that not one jot or tittle of this law will fail or fall. Um, And I think by saying that, he is affirming the truth of the Old Testament is still the truth. There may be specific applications that are, are different, but he makes it clear there is no truth in the Old Testament that's now no longer true. Okay, You want to add to that? He gave me the answer this morning, so (laughs) how did I do, teacher? Dean. I guess I was confused on one part you talked about earlier, so I'd maybe ask clarification. But as a male, when you talked about the creation of man and woman, it seemed to me that you implied that making a man was a greater miracle from dirt. (laughs) Let's just say he had a farther way to go, a longer way to go. (laughs) He needed less refined materials to make the man. I don't, I don't, you know, in other words, let me, let me say this. I know, I know you're teasing. There is a great, 
truth in Genesis 2, almost there's more there than I think we can pinpoint. The fact that God takes out, well, what does Adam say? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So he didn't just take out a rib. He took out a chunk of his side. The, the Hebrew is just side. He took out a portion of it and he used that to form the woman. So he literally is making the bones out of the bone and the flesh out of the flesh. And he, it, God's doing this very deliberately. If he wanted to, he could have made male and female from the beginning immediately. And he chose to do it this way. I think to demonstrate to us the relationship of a man and a woman. Because when Adam saw her, he didn't say, what's that thing? It was like, <laughs> finally, like, yes, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And there was, there was that um, compliment to him that he needed, that completion of him that was formerly not good. Now it's very good. Um, and so there's so much going on there. Even Paul in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach her to have authority, exercise authority over a man for, and then he quotes Adam and Eve in their fall in Genesis 3. And he says, it was the woman who was deceived, not the man. Now, I wouldn't be daring enough to look at that and say, therefore, women can't teach. I mean, I don't, he, but he does. He does. He makes it real clear that there's something about the nature of man and woman, the, the, uh, the way God created a man and a woman, that they ought to carry out different functions, different roles. Peter says the same thing. Peter says, live with your husbands, in First Peter, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And he says, as with a weaker vessel. So God knew when he was making the woman, he was making something more delicate, more beautiful, but also weaker. That would be kind of the negative way of saying it, but delicate. Uh, what do you want to drink your tea out of? A, a beautiful, fine bone china teacup or a stainless steel, you know, one inch rim mug? I'd take the china. What's prettier to look at? The china is just gorgeous. Well, it's also weaker. It's more delicate. It's beautiful. And that's how God fashioned male and female. So I know you're teasing, but there's a lot going on there that I don't think we may never know in this life, uh, but there's a whole bunch going on there that is significant. George. In the sermon, one of, I think the, the three, you made three points that are connected about the world believing lies about the concept of the self yes, and how it's related to the self and the body, feelings, the soul and the body. Yes. Um, in second Corinthians five, the, um, the passage about, uh, we know if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Um, basically him talking about we're incomplete without having our heavenly bodies given to us and being more fully clothed. And we don't want to be like without bodies. We want to be embodied, uh, Part of the tension that I'm thinking through is if I was to apply just the framework given as the world believes uh, the lie that the self consists only of the soul, that the soul is more primary than the body, and that the soul consists only of feelings, the first two things that the the soul, basically about the soul's primacy over the body, I can at least find some degree of... Location, locating the self inside the soul within scripture that I think is different than what you're, you're aiming against and saying no to, which is like Gnostic uh, 
hatred of matter type of like the way that our world articulates that relationship between soul and body that allows like transgenderism and everything else we've been seeing in this series. So could you speak to that a little bit like about what are, what are some um, distinctions and overlaps between what the world's getting right and wrong when it talks about the relationship of the soul and the body a little bit more? Yeah, I I think that what the world's getting right in regard to the, the soul and the body is pretty much limited to they're not the same thing. The world gets that right. Good job. Um, they aren't the same thing. But the primacy of the soul, there, is a, there, is, there are biblical passages. This is just one of them. 1 Corinthians 15 would be another one. Um, uh, we've talked through some of them. I, I'm not thinking of them off the top of my head. I, I want to say there's four or five minimum that deal with body, soul, and they're distinct. They're different. One is not superior to the other. What, um, and I think this goes back to Genesis, actually. What did God tell Adam would happen if he ate from the fruit of the tree? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And we read that passage and we think, he didn't die. I think he did. I think he did die, just not in the way that we expected it. Um, And I think what's happening is there's death in the body because of Adam. So when we're born, there's no chance we're going to live forever without intervention. Our bodies will die. Even as little children, we may be growing, but we're still declining. We're closer to our death. In that sense only is the soul primary to the body. What will remain of us when our body dies? Our soul, to, de- to depart the body is to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I would much rather depart this tent and, and live in, in the presence of God. But having said all of that, what is he immediately going back to? I'm not going to be unclothed. I'm not, I'm not taking my body off so my, my soul can be uh, naked, as it were, and he says in 2 Corinthians 5. Rather, I want to be more fully and completely closed, closed which means we're going to have a resurrection body, an immortal body. Our soul is immortal. Our body right now is not. We're yet to receive our immortal body. And so in that sense, there's a uh, primacy given to the soul. But what's the lie is, and therefore the soul is what determines who you really are, and it's disconnected from your body, and you can separate them. Look, I don't know who I am apart from my body. And even your, your, um, you, what we conceive of as our soul, where does it come from? Where are your thoughts going on? They're in your head, right? Or maybe the Bible would may, maybe say heart, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But it's connected to my body still, whether or not it's my brain or my head, my heart or my, my inner being, it's still connected to my body. And so we're talking about things we don't have any clue of. Why don't we go with what's obvious right in front of us, our bodies? Pretty easy to read the body. We'll have lessons on how to turn a mic on and off after the... Well, take something as, as um, fundamental to identity as thought. And as a Christian, I don't want to say thinking is entirely encapsulated by brains because uh, disembodied souls under the throne of God have thoughts and their reasoning. And the Bible places reasoning and thinking in your heart as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. But as 
clear to us that thinking is a, even in something as, as abstract and spiritual as thought, it's a psychosomatic reality. You mess with someone's brain, they may think differently. You harm their brain is damaged in certain areas. Their thought processes are affected. So the interweaving of our soul and our body is not nearly as simple as we can think. It's, it's far better and more biblical to view us as the unity. Now, there, there are passages that will highlight the difference. So Jesus can say, don't fear them who can only put your body to death. Fear him who can put your body and soul into hell. Right, so there's 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 a contrasting passage. You know, you know, um, the Caesar can can kill bodies. Caesar can't kill souls. God can do both. Um, so there are passages that'll show that distinction. And Jesus can say that sin comes not from the physical body, but out of the heart, meaning the immaterial part. So there's a primacy, actually, in our sinfulness, which is contrary to the Gnostics. So, so Gnosticism, we're using a term that George used. He introduced. Um, a first century belief that matter is bad, matter is corrupt, matter is um, sinful. And so the thought was all of your sin comes out of your flesh, your body. The fact that Paul uses the term flesh in Romans, sometimes people think is making that point. Jesus is emphatic, no, out of the heart come these things. And again, you get that union because it starts in my immaterial being, but then my mouth speaks it. It starts in the immaterial being, then my hand does it. There's a union. My body is doing, committing the evil acts, even as they're sourced in the wellspring of my soul. So there are aspects of primacy to the spirit, but again and again and again, the concept is the union. And so to try to make one more important, I think would be an unbiblical idea. We could identify certain parts of our being and certain parts of our activity as being more foundational, like physical hunger tends, it seems to, as far as I can tell, come from my body, not my soul. Um, lust, not necessarily. You know, I mean, the church history has got some early church fathers who taking Jesus very literally about cutting off their hand, origin for one, who still dealt with ongoing lust, even though physically they had castrated themselves. Um, so that's not purely a physical issue, but okay. I'm, you want to add anything or have I just stirred the pot more? No, I'd take a few things away, but just, just trim it down a little bit. Just kidding. Um, I have a question on the Anna. homosexuality. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not good with words, so I don't know if I'm going to put this right or not, but, um, I have a young man that's, uh, calls me mom and he's a uh, homosexual, just split up with his partner. But my question, um, all the sins that you mentioned that are sending you to hell, we're, we're focusing on um, the homosexuality, especially today. But I think um, in the world now, um, it's pushed so much. I, I think back many, many years ago when I was in biology, I was with a young man that just had that tendency. And, and I think, what, what causes that to happen? Because um, here's a family that has this... Um, really good-looking athletic brother, and then here's this little guy that that seems like he's feminine. So um, here's two brothers in one family. What causes, what causes that? I don't believe that God would let anybody be born that way. I, I can't believe that. But I don't understand what drives them, and then nowadays they're almost pushed into it. Yeah, that's for sure. There's such a a celebration of it, that even if you had no inclination towards it, you would want to just to get the affirmation that you've seen others get for it. There was a boy six years old. Did you hear that? I don't want to hear any of this stuff. 
I mean, it's so disturbing. It's so sad because you know what damage is going to be done when you're putting on a six-year-old onto hormones or, I mean, what do you think you're doing? You're playing with fire. Um, So the the question is, where does this come from or why does it happen? Why are some this way and others are not? Let me rephrase it slightly, and, and I'll ask a different question. Are some people born with these desires? I, I, I think the answer is close to yes. There's no reason that I can think of. There's no way I could prove that certain people aren't born with this desire. Some of you are born, you have, uh, ladies, you have a desire for chocolate. Now, some of you, it's like crazy. You just love chocolate. And others, ah, who cares? I don't really care. Why? You were, you were born, I mean, you didn't make a decision to crave chocolate. It's kind of part of who you are, right? You follow me? Could something similar be true regarding homosexuality? I don't see a reason why it couldn't be possible. I, I can't prove that it is true, but I don't see why not. Given that, if, we're, if each of us is born with different propensities, different inclinations, uh, a different set of desires, it's entirely possible that one of us is more prone to overeating, one of us is more prone to greed, one of us is more prone to um, adultery, one of us is more prone to drunkenness, one of us is more prone to homosexuality. I, th- I think that fits. The question is, what do you do with that desire? Do you accept and act on and encourage and incite that desire in your life? And if you do, what you're going to get is someone who practices homosexuality. If, on the other hand, you say, I have this desire, but I know from what God has said in his word, and I can tell from my body he has not made me for that, I'm going to resist that temptation, just like my greed, just like my, my uh, hunger, whatever other desire might be sinful. Then you're going to get a very different person. You're going to get somebody who is battling, who is wrestling, who may be weak and broken, but not defeated and not having sold, you know, given themselves over to sin. Does that address... Enough. Oh, Jeremy wants to add something, oh. I think. Oh, I'd, I'd go further and say I, I, would, I would default to, yeah, we, we're all born. We're not born innocent and then become sinful. We're born, if I could switch the analogy to a garden, we're born with the seed packet, I think, for all wickedness in our hearts. Each of us comes, that this is part of the standard package coming into the world. Psalm um, 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. So I have no, theologically, I would assume the, the starter kit for every type of wickedness is in all our hearts. And, and using the garden metaphor, some of us will water some seeds. Some seeds will get more light. Some seeds will um, get more environmental uh, encouragement. And, and we can't parse why I struggle with what I struggle with. Could it be genetic? It it could be. Could there be a gene that predisposes someone to pride or drunkenness or homosexuality? It wouldn't mess with my theology in the least if we discovered one. 
Wouldn't, not at all. If we, had, if we found the gay gene, I'd say, yeah, we're fallen. We're, we're corrupt through and through, head to toe. Jeans and, and shirt alike, you know? Um, that's a bad joke. Uh, but, but we come into the world that way. So, I mean, you said could, you didn't believe God would allow somebody born that way. Would God allow somebody born a liar seeking the approval of man, uh, a, a coveting person? Can they be born that way? I, I think we would. And if not coveting with everything in their heart necessary to do that, coming in, set. That's not something that gets added after the fact. We don't come in as blank slates and then they're... Our environment corrupts us. We come in corrupt. That 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 um, yeah. That, that garden's me, there. Yeah. The the po- possibility or potential for that is could be present. I I would want to say though when Paul in First Corinthians six, I think the distinction that the world misses is whatever propensity or desire I have, that doesn't make me me. I don't become a thief until I steal. Even if I covet, even if I have a desire to steal, I can fight that. I become a thief when I say yes to that desire. That's what makes a homosexual, is someone who not just only has the desire, but who has acted upon it, who has done it, who has accepted it. And a Christian can turn from that, reject that, and say, that was wrong, and I don't want to do that anymore. Um, Just like a Christian could do that with stealing. So I'm... I'm trying to put the, a little more emphasis on the choice aspect of it, knowing that I, I'm ignorant in regard to genes. And I think even the greatest scientists in the world still don't understand what's going on with genes. For a long time, they thought they, they had it. Oh, we're almost there. And, and then they find out genes can shift during your lifetime and they can change and all sorts of bizarre things that I don't have any understanding of. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, you good? Yeah, let me... Let okay, me, let, let me... Let, we got a question oh, over okay. here. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is uh, something that uh, Jossie and I encountered a lot while we were working at camp and just in ministry in general. Uh, and so this is the question is, what do you do when Christians twist scripture in order to hold homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle? Um, so we're both fully convinced... Uh, on what scripture is saying. And so you're kind of at a, it appears you're kind of at a impasse. And, you know, they're arguing things like the, the Old Testament is cultural and tossing out, you know, you argued against that. But, and then as well as things like your, your fourth point, um, which was, uh, what did it say? Um, yeah, that, that the Bible only addresses corrupt forms of homosexuality. And so it's, it's, it's difficult. And so, I just was wondering if you had any thoughts on what you do um, in, in those contexts. So let me make sure I understand the question. How do you deal with Christians who yes. look at those texts and come mm. up with something totally different? Totally different, yeah. I think the key is to understand whether or not they're open to reason and whether or not they're willing to listen. At the end of the day, all, none of us has perfect theology. We've all got little bits of theology that we've embraced or accepted that we don't realize contradict other things that are true. And so we're all being refined. And the question is not how refined are you? It's are you willing to be refined further? So in regard to these texts regarding homosexuality, it is possible that someone has simply been taught something that's blatantly false. 
Will they go to the scriptures with you and examine the scriptures with you and be open to reason and actually admit, yeah, Paul says the very opposite of that. If they're willing to do that, then I think you can be patient with them. Don't, don't make this be the, uh, uh, not Mephibosheth, the Shibboleth of, of your Christianity. If you get the wrong answer on this, you're out. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. The issue is, what, can you be corrected? And if, if, if they're open to reason and they're willing to search the scriptures with you and there is an openness, an admission, okay, yeah, it's not really what Paul's saying, is it? then I think you can go a long way with them and be patient with them. If, on the other hand, they don't care what the scripture says, they've got their excuse, it's canned, they have their answer, they're going to stick to that, and they're not going to bother with the text, I don't think you're dealing with a Christian. Um, I don't know that for sure, but you're probably not. And so I would say something along the lines of keep your distance. Um, It may very well be that this is a person who is twisting scripture. They don't care about the truth of scripture and they won't be corrected by it. See 2 Peter 3, where, where Peter says that's what people are doing with Paul's writings, just like the rest of scripture. So there are certain people in Christianity or who would call themselves Christians who want to twist the scriptures to their own ends. Okay, uh, Matthew. Oh, we, oh I, I'm sorry. You got the mics. And then afterwards, Matthew, you're... Yes, Bennett. Um, I have, like, two things that, like, I would like to bring up. In the story of Joseph, um, where um, Potiphar's wife... Yes. Um, starts to be attracted to um, Joseph. Joseph. And um, um, when he starts to do work for Potiphar, she tries to manipulate um, him into believing um, that he's saying a lie to actually doesn't want to um, do anything with her because Potiphar is his master in the story and he ends up in a prison and um um, is the wife doing kind of like abortion? Uh, the, the wife is sinning. The Potiphar's wife is, is trying to it? entice Joseph. And she's, she's wicked. And Joseph knows it. And he tries to resist her honorably. And it comes to a point where he has to literally run away. And when he does, she grabs his coat. And that's how he gets convicted. So what she was doing was terrible. You, second point? In my second, well, I have three, actually. Okay, <laughs> we might not be able to get to all of them because I got a bunch of other I questions. I have quick ones, okay. okay. Um, in the book of Job, where he gets everything taken away at the end, does he do a lot of abortion? No. No, there's no abortion in the book of Job. 
Okay, that's yeah. the second one. And the third one will be Proverbs. That's a lot of talking about abortion. I don't think so. Do you mean abomination? Abomination, that's it. Oh, okay. Yes, the book of Proverbs deals a lot with abomination. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot. It, it substantially deals with abominations. There are multiple abominations. Um, uh, in, in the idea of an abomination is something that's repulsive. The first time you find abomination in the, the Bible is with Joseph. Joseph's <laughs> brothers come to town. They travel in from uh, Israel into Egypt, and Joseph says, don't eat with the Egyptians. The way you eat your food is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's the first use of it. So what the idea is they're repulsed by the way you eat. It's so different from the way they eat, they find it disgusting. I don't know why. We're not told any specifics. I don't know if they ate with their hands and the Egyptians didn't. I don't know if they ate with their mouths open and the Egyptians didn't. I have no idea. The Egyptians found it abominable. So that's where you've got the abomination. So in Proverbs, the, the abominations are coming up regularly to tell us what God does not like. What does God find repulsive? What does he find I don't like? Uh, that I'm not pleased with that. I'm not happy. I want to turn my face away from that. And the Proverbs deals with that. I mentioned one of them, the unjust balances or weights, where you're the seller, you're selling your corn, and you've got a good weight and a bad weight, uh, a light weight. They're both, they look the same. They both say one pound on them, but one of them's really only 14 ounces. And so when the guy you don't like comes up, you weigh out your corn with the 14 ounce thing and say, oh, here you go, one pound. And you're cheating. You're robbing that person. And God says, I find that to be an abomination. Okay, I'm going to skip to the next one. You know you can find me afterwards and ask me more questions if you want. Somewhere over here, okay. I have, I have one. Matt, this, okay, Matthew first, and then Wanda. Oh, first, ladies first. Ladies first. Well, this will be real fast. I mentioned this to Pastor Jeremy, but I was listening to a podcast um, of um, Rosaria Butterfield. She's a really outspoken lesbian, and then a pastor. She's now married to a pastor's wife. She switched. She's no longer gay. And someone asked her just the question Donna asked, do you believe people are born that way? And I'm, I'm, I thought that was a really good answer, but I'm thinking after listening to you, maybe it isn't a good answer. She said, no, I do not believe they're born that way because uh, scripture tells us we're born in the image of God. And I thought that was a really good answer, but now I'm thinking, well, maybe not. The, the, I, I think... I think my answer would not contradict that. Jeremy's answer might contradict it. Okay. I, 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 he said he wanted to go further. He took one step further, and I think that's the part that contradicts it. I don't think that's an entirely bad answer. I, I wouldn't disagree with someone who said that. I just want to clarify. Do you mean that um, there was an active choice for me to be, say, I'm prone to drunkenness? Are you saying that I sinned to get this desire of drunkenness? Or did I come this way? Was there a choice on my part that resulted in this or not? And if there isn't a choice that I made that resulted in this, then it seems like we mean you were born that way. 
Not that God gave you that sinful desire necessarily, but he certainly allowed for that sinful desire. Um, and maybe, yeah, who, who knows what God allows in terms of, look, you guys sinned, you all deserve hell, so here's what's going to happen. You're going to have these different inclinations and propensities, and some of you are going to deal with things that no one else deals with. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't argue against that. So I wouldn't directly contradict that answer. Jeremy, do you want to defend yourself? <laughs> let me, conf- let me, let me clarify yourself. what we both agree on. You do agree we don't come in innocent and sinless. Correct. So the question is simply how fully developed is yeah. the sin? Is it a principle of sin? So I'm fine just saying the starter pack seeds. I'd also be fine if I learned actually even at, at conception they're already heading in different directions Biblically, I am going beyond what's said. I just have no problem if that's right. the way it turned out to be. I've, I think some t- what I'm more trying to say is that argument isn't a powerful argument. The, no. Well, if I'm born this way, because I'm saying even if you were, so what? Right. I'm born with a desire to get drunk. Right. What should I do? Don't get drunk. Right? I mean, I need to fight that desire. The fact that I'm born that way does not give me justification to act that way. We have a choice to make, and the desires are often difficult to pin down where they come from. I, I, don't know, I don't know if I'm unusual, but random desires might come into your head. You're driving along, and you, you think about some random thing. It's not like I'm dealing with those sorts of desires all the time. They're just fleeting, and we're, are, we're inundated with those. Or maybe you're watching a movie, and you see something happen, and a thought comes into your head that wouldn't have. I don't know what caused it. Is that from my heart or was it prompted by this? I'm clueless. I do like the idea, though, that we are made in God's image. And so there's something um, uh, inherently good, uh, good about the way God made us. But we don't come into this world sinless. And so I'd want to make sure you don't mean that when you say we were made in God's image. So I came in perfect. I don't think that jives with... um, David's words in sin, my mother conceived me. And well, and the other reason I'm trying to drop the drop fighting for that point is I think it, it's possible that we could bludgeon people to feel an additional layer of guilt where I don't know the Bible would do that. Not only do we need to tell someone struggling with um, same sex attraction, you need to fight that, but do we then need to, on top of that, say, and it's your fault. You did something. You may not even remember what you did as a little child. And that's the reason why you do struggle with that sin and I don't. I'm not even, I don't want to burden someone with that additional guilt if it's not warranted. It may, it may be possible, but I, I, I have talked to plenty. I did not consciously make a choice one day to covet the approval of man. Maybe I did. I, I don't remember it. Um, I know I need to fight that desire. But I don't want to put a burden on someone where they're walking around thinking, because for people, the, the testimony of, of men and women who struggle with this is this is a very difficult, enduring, it's rare, it seems, that God grants immediate deliverance from the, the battle. Victory in the battles is entirely possible, but that the battle ceases is the testimony of those who struggle with this is, is not common, that it just ceases. So this is a hard, long battle. And... You can wonder, why do I have to struggle with this and my neighbor doesn't? And I don't want the answer to be, well, because you did something bad. You made a choice way back when. Now, there may be additional realities, because if you gave yourself to this for years, I'm sure you're going to have a much more difficult time giving it up. 
And so, yeah, there is some reality where you cultivated your appetite for this and you fed your appetite for this and you, you want it more now than you would have if you'd never given in to this. But I don't see any need to, to, to foist upon someone the additional burden of, and the very fact that you have this desire and I don't is because you did something I didn't do. It, that, that's, that's, I'm just trying to get that sledgehammer out of the hands that I think some people have. It's, it's one of the ways we can be self-righteous. It's your fault you struggle with that. That disgusting abomination, that's your fault. And I'm, I didn't do that, so I don't struggle with it. Yay me. That's the other reason why I'm totally fine to surrender. Yeah, you may well come out of the womb that way, without this proclivity and desire. As far as I can tell, I came out of the womb speaking, wanting to twist the truth to my own ends and wanting my own way. And as far as I can tell, all my kids came out of the womb hardwired to want their own way. So I'm, I'm fine if it turns out that way. I know, right? They want food. They don't get it. They scream. Unbelievable. <laughs> Who taught him how to do that? Okay, Matthew. Mine's kind of two points, but it leads into like the same kind of question. So this might be a bit of a quibble. It just felt a little disingenuous, your comparison of homosexuality and that desire to a thief. Uh, I think of when God made man, it was not good that man was alone, and so God made him woman that they might cleave to each other and become one. Paul talks about um, that not everyone has a gift of celibacy that they should take a wife and, and marry. I feel like uh, a relationship for and how God intended it is, is vital to human health and uh, just well-being in general. And the fact that you kind of compared it to stealing and the desire to steal when it's a fundamental and relationships are a fundamental part of human nature and human desire and a godly context it is very good. It just kind of felt a little off. But in light of how severe uh, an issue homosexuality can be, and then thinking of how Jesus dealt with the adulterous woman, you have not sin cast the first stone, go and sin no more. What's a good and loving way in light of the, the severity of the sin itself that we can talk to and minister to someone who suffers with that issue without falling into this camp that so many of uh, our fellow believers fall into of, well, I'm going to pick up the stone and cast it at you. The, the question is, how can we show someone the severity of the sin of homosexuality? Without, like, being, being the guy who... Because the, the verses that talk specifically about homosexuality in the Bible are very severe. Like, this is a dishonorable act, it's against nature. But God also says, Jesus specifically, who's without sin cast the first stone. And, like, the way Jesus handles sexual sin is a lot tamer than the way Paul kind of handles it. If in terms of like the verbiage he uses to address it. And so in light of that, in light of the severity, I think of the issue, because really it's, there's a lot going on with that kind of a desire. How can we minister and reach out to someone who has to deal with that? Because realistically you're telling someone to deny a huge part of um, something that brings fulfillment. So like me, I love my wife and I get great happiness and fulfillment from my marriage. I'm sure Everyone here who's married gets that too. You're basically, for a lot of people who suffer from homosexuality, denying a fundamental part of human existence to them by denying that homosexuality. I'm not arguing that homosexuality is right, just that it's a very, very hard struggle for people who have that issue. And in light of that, and in light of you know Jesus being a lot kinder, and you know our contemporaries 
being very harsh with that, how can we minister? How can we reach out in a way that can help them, I guess? I'm, I'm, there, there are a few things you said I'm not sure I agree with your fundamental premises. Okay, I, that's I, fair. I don't think Jesus dealt lightly with I'm not saying sin. lightly, um, just not casting stones. But those aren't metaphorical stones. Those are real yeah, instruments of death, I, I, right? Those are real stones meant to kill people. Before you go kill someone, if you're, I mean, I mean all I'm saying is we, we use that phrase so metaphorically, he's, he's really stopping the implementation of the death penalty in that instance, right? Fair. So to then make that a metaphorical, so therefore I can't say that's wrong. I'm not saying that okay. it's not wrong. I'm okay. just saying what's a kind way to do it. I'm not arguing that Jesus was wrong, just like what's a, what's a kind way and a loving way to address the, the situation. But, but he takes this head on. Some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs by men, and some become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is in response to Jesus' teaching on divorce with the disciples, like, whoa, if marriage is that serious, <laughs> it might be better just to be single. So Jesus looks, they're going to be people, and, he's, and he acknowledges the difficulty. Let those of you who can bear this accept this who are going to come to the... He doesn't tell us who they are, but there are some people who, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will live asexual lives. Right? So it, so we shouldn't be surprised if we come across somebody where it seems as though right now, for what you struggle with and where you're at, you should live an asexual... You should commit yourself to live an asexual life for the kingdom of God. And Jesus recognized that'll be a difficult thing for some to hear. But I do appreciate the fact he doesn't pull any punches. There will be those people who that's going to be their, their, for the, their faithfulness to God, we bearing that out. I, I think the, you, what you want to fight against is the idea that, you're, that speaking the truth is unkind. So there's a manner in which you can speak the truth that's kind, even if your words are directly contradicting what a person believes. And I think we need to model and demonstrate that kindness to people, even when we think they're dead wrong. So I'd start there. Um, let, let, let your manner of conduct be praiseworthy, above reproach. You're not getting into a fight, an argument with people who disagree with you. And when you're explaining to someone what the Bible says, your goal is not to beat them over the head with it, but to show them clearly what the Bible says. That's actually part of why I compared it to a thief. Because we might be tempted to think that's the bad, bad sin. Meanwhile, we're dealing with desires to steal and rob. And I think what Paul says clearly is, no, both that sin and this sin are going to keep you out of heaven if you don't fight against them. So show that you're in the battle with them. It may not be the same battle, but you're fighting against your own sins, your own propensities to sin. You're not different than they are in that sense. I don't think the Bible acknowledges anything like a person who is born homosexual. They can only be homosexual. They're locked into it. I don't think the Bible acknowledges that. They may have desires, but not the act itself. So... That's where I'd start. Last question, maybe? No, I'll, you can ask me at home. Just <laughs> cheat. We're over time by a minute. So, okay, so... Oh, oh great. If, if <laughs> woman is created from man's side, does that explain why they have this urge to 
elbow them. Right there. They're good. It's like a return to your childhood home. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll let you go. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We know there are so many uh, more questions, so much more we can say. I pray that this would serve as a foundation for us to begin uh, reaching out to those who, who deal with this. And I pray that you would give us a heart of compassion, that we would not be arrogant, think more highly of ourselves than we ought, as though we're superior to those who deal with this temptation. And I pray that you would give us the grace to point them to your word, to show them they too can be washed and sanctified and justified just like we were. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.